You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. All right. Stop being friendly. It's like a reunion going on in here. What is that? Everyone's so friendly. It's not a bad thing. Well, good to see you. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. If it's your first time with us, I'm just delighted that you would come and worship with us today. I want to thank Bethany and Genevieve, our co-directors of children's ministry here. Just did a tremendous job the last few weeks. And thank you to all the volunteers as well. Um, Giving kids a great time, but also sowing the gospel into them. Just appreciate all of your labor in that. Uh, Let's pray as we go to God's word today. As always, Jesus, we are not here um, to hear from me, but from you. Uh, Spirit, would you instruct us now from the words that you inspired? Would you give me words to say that are pleasing to you and helpful to your people? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe, hands to obey what you have for us in this passage? Jesus, we ask it for your sake. Amen. Well, today's passage is all about giving, so let's jump in. Here's what Paul writes. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. In the first half of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses problems the Corinthians were facing. In the second half of the letter, Paul answers questions the Corinthians were asking. And now Paul answers some questions about giving. Paul had started this fund to help the very first Christian church, the church in Jerusalem. These Jewish believers, the first believers in the Gospels, uh, and the Gospel had suffered intense persecution for their faith. Some had lost their homes. A severe famine had swept across the Mediterranean world. And as a result, this first Jerusalem church is in terrible need. Many of these people are poor. And so Paul begins this fund and invites all of these churches he has planted in the Mediterranean world to contribute to this fund to help the believers in Jerusalem. And Paul spent years on this project. Years. In fact, nothing seems to have occupied his attention so much as as this Jerusalem project. He wanted to get the gospel where it wasn't yet and work on this project. Why was Paul concerned about this project? We're going to answer that later. We're going to get there. But in any case, the Corinthians, they're aware of the fund. They want to contribute to the fund, but apparently they wanted to know the mechanics. How is this going to work? How should we give the money? How will you collect the money? When will you collect the money? What are you going to do with my money, Paul? And so Paul answers all of those questions, all of the how to give kind of questions. Now, if that's all this passage is, the takeaway is very simple. Paul showed the Corinthians how to give. We should also give. Here's how you give at Creekside. Take out your phone, 
can download the app. And start. I'll just I'll walk you through it. It'll be great. It, this is a pretty simple passage. Um, but there's a lot more going on here. Paul isn't just giving this how-to guide. He's speaking to a deeper issue. Not, not just how we give, but why we should be generous in the first place and what real generosity looks like. And it's critical this morning that you get to those deeper level issues because let's be honest, if we're talking about giving, this topic makes a lot of people feel anxious. Feel anxious. It makes me anxious. I'm anxious about giving because I'm a pastor. Uh, you know, you probably know we've been going through this uh, update to our online giving platform. And that may not sound very exciting, but trust me, it is riveting. Because for me, it is a test of faith. Even though I've seen God provide so consistently, even though you give so faithfully, there's always this lingering voice in the back of your head that says, this is a terrible idea. If we update our giving platform, that's a hassle. You don't want to do that. People don't want to do that. And if we don't do that, people are just going to stop giving. And then when they stop giving, guess what? The church is doomed. And I'm not going to have a job. And, and, and yeah, it's funny. But, but imagine I listen to that. It's going to affect the way I communicate on giving. Listen, you need to update your giving information now or we're doomed. We're doomed. I got four kids, okay? Four kids. You want me to miss Christmas this year? Is that what you... Now, now that sounds silly. Not to mention manipulative. And that's because it is. But for anyone who gets their living from the gospel, that is the low-level rattle in the back of their head all the time. I'm dependent on other people. What if something happens? And because ministers have that ever-present anxiety, there is a temptation to use guilt, pressure, manipulation to sort of make people give. And that brings us to the next anxiety we're going to feel when we talk about money. And it's this. We don't want to feel pressured or coerced into giving. And yet it seems like churches specialize in that. I was looking at a demographic study for our area. And it looked at people's perceptions of the church in a five-mile radius of this building. It's very specific. Five-mile radius of right here. What are people's perceptions of the church? Do you know the number one reason people don't want to be part of a religious institution? Because they're going to hit me up for money. Number one. And that explains the anxiety that so many people feel when they walk into a church. That really, the subterranean thing, if I look down underneath what this place is really about is what? Money. That's why it exists to get people's money. Now listen, if you're a guest this morning or you don't yet believe in Jesus, I just want to allay your fears at the outset. This talk isn't for you. It's not. I don't want your money. Church is free, okay? Glad you're here. Now, let's move on to those of you who are committed to Jesus, who are invested here. Here's the third anxiety bringing, giving brings up. And it's this. You have this low-level sense you know you should be generous. And maybe you also have this low-level sense that I should be giving more. I should be more generous. Because maybe you know how much the Bible talks about money. 
And you know that Jesus talks about money more than he talks about just about everything because money is this index of our priorities and our relationship with God and it reveals what our heart treasures. And so if all that is true, man, we really should be generous people. And then we also know, man, compared to the rest of the world, most of us are really wealthy people too, aren't we? I mean, guys, I am rolling. And that might sound weird for a pastor to say. But, but listen, relative to the Bay Area, I'm pretty normal. But relative to the rest of the world, I am unbelievably rich. Top 98th percentile of wealth in the world. Uh, and if you know those things, there's this anxiety that I know I should be more giving. I know, and there's guilt, and there's compulsion. And, and so in light of these anxieties that exist across the spectrum, what is going to motivate generosity? This passage gives us the framework for how to think about giving. I want us to consider what would actually make us a radically generous church. How are we going to get there? And, and what would it look like for us to be that? Let's answer those questions. First, I want to look at the motive for generosity. And then next, the marks of generosity. What would fuel you to be the kind of person who gladly gave your money away? And second, when you have the right fuel, what would generosity look like, not just for you as an individual, but for us collectively as a church? What would our church look like? Those are the questions I want to ask, answer today. Let's start with the fuel. What, what would motivate me to become a radically generous person? Well, let's start with what won't motivate you and what cannot motivate you. And that's compulsion or guilt. It will never make you a generous person. Let's look at what Paul says. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, for the, the believers in Jerusalem, that word collection is interesting. It's a rare word. In fact, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. And so the question to ask is, why does Paul use such a weird, unique word to describe his giving campaign? Here's why. In Paul's day, that particular word he uses was used specifically to denote a voluntary gift, not a compulsory gift. And that's very significant. Paul does not want the Corinthians to think of this campaign as some kind of church tax. He's not taxing the church. As he says in verse 3, it's a gift. This fund, it's not a tax, it's a gift. He makes that point more explicit in 2 Corinthians. You know, it's interesting. Paul writes 1 Corinthians, and a year later he writes 2 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, it's clear the Corinthians are eager to contribute to this fund. Fast forward a year to 2 Corinthians, guess what? They still haven't contributed to the fund. It hasn't happened. Now, if you're Paul, you know, you'd kind of want to flex on them a little bit, wouldn't you? I command you as an apostle, give to the fund. Or you could say, you know, you Corinthians are wishy-washy. You talk a big game, you say all this stuff, but you don't follow through. Maybe manipulate them a little, turn the knife. In fact, Paul never does that in 2 Corinthians. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, when he returns to talk about this fund, he says in 2 Corinthians 8, go back, he says, I say this to you not as a command. In other words, Corinthians, I want you to give freely, not forced. 
Later in 2 Corinthians 9, he says, I want you to give not reluctantly or under compulsion, but cheerfully, for God loves a cheerful giver. So Paul says, I don't want to manipulate you. I don't want to force you. You have freedom in this. I don't want to compel you. And that's a critical feature of all New Testament giving. New Testament giving is always free. It is never forced. See, in the Old Testament, the Israelites gave in two ways. They paid tithes. They gave offerings. Tithes and offerings. The tithe was a payment. The offering was a gift. There were free will offerings. And that distinction is critical. When the Israelites tithed, that was a tax. It was a tax to the nation. And Israel didn't just pay one tithe, they actually paid three tithes. Uh, Leviticus 27, God says to the Israelites, pay a tithe to provide for the Levites who worked in the temple. Deuteronomy 14, he says, tithe for religious festivals that we celebrate every year. Later in Deuteronomy 14, he says, tithe for the needs of the poor and marginalized. But that third tithe was only given three years. So all you accountants know this already. If you prorate the third tithe, three tithes, you have 23 and a third percent of your money going to the state every year. That's not a gift. That's a tax. And that's a tax because Israel's a nation. And nations need taxes. The church is not a state. It's not a geopolitical entity. We're a family. Families have needs, but it is free will offerings that meet the needs. There is no New Testament tax on the church. Why is that significant? Because it shows that we don't give from a sense of obligation or compulsion, not because give or else, but because we want to give. And the truth is this, if you give simply out of compulsion or guilt, you will never become a generous person. Do you know why? When you give out of compulsion, you give to make the person asking go away. Right? That's why you give. My money sends you away. If you get out of guilt, I give enough to make what go away? The guilt. So once the guilt goes away, or the people go away, you've lost your motivation to give which means I will give the bare minimum I need to to not feel bad and for people to leave me alone. Think about it this way. Uh, think about taxes. Do you know anyone who pays more in taxes than they're required to pay? <laughs> anyone who says, listen, did you know our national debt is $32 trillion? We're not going to get out of this unless some people just give. So I give a few thousand each year, and you should too. A thousand more. Who thinks that way? Maybe you do. I do not. In fact, everyone I know tries to pay as little as possible, and Americans spend billions of dollars so they don't have to spend billions of dollars on taxes. When the standard is, here's what you absolutely must pay or else, you will give that and no more. New Testament giving doesn't work that way. That's one reason we don't pressure you to give here because it won't make you generous. It's why we haven't passed a plate or had high-pressure giving campaigns or things like that because we don't believe that that's how New Testament giving works. It's free. It's not forced. And we don't want to give you any impression that we are pumping you, pushing you, trying to force you to give. 
Compulsion doesn't lead to generosity. It leads to a bare minimum. Paul wants more than a bare minimum. You know what Paul wants for you and for me? He doesn't just want a little giving. He wants abundance. He wants abundance. Remember what he says right before this, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always what? Abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Paul says, abound in the work of the Lord. In light of the fact that Jesus is going to return, that we're going to get new bodies, that everything will be resurrected and made new, and we're living for eternity in light of all that, abound in the work of the Lord. And then what's the first thing he talks about? Money. Abounding in the work of the Lord means abounding in generosity. And you ask, how do you know that, Jeff? Good question. Because in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, do you know what Paul defines as abounding in the work of the Lord? Generosity. Generosity. 2 Corinthians 8, he says that, that giving flows out of this abundance of joy. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, he says, sow bountifully, reap bountifully. In verse 8, he says, abound in every good work. So listen, abounding in the work of the Lord doesn't just mean money. It's your whole life. Is abounding in the work of the Lord, but it certainly doesn't mean less than money. Abounding in the work of the Lord means abundant generosity. So, million dollar question what leads to an abundance mindset where you give abundantly? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, Do you know why people give? It's out of an abundance of joy. When your heart is overflowing with joy, you overflow in generosity to other people. It's almost like you can't help it. It's just natural to who you are when you are filled with joy. See, and that's how God wants us to give because God wants to make us givers like he is a giver. God's a giver. God didn't create us because he's needy to take something from us. In fact, the only reason God would create is for his own glory and to bless, to give. Within the community of the Father, Son, and Spirit, there is sufficiency, there is no lack, there is no need, and so God's life is just an overflow of abundance towards us, of joy. Don't you want to live like that? Overflowing joy? What makes you like that? Well, let me give you an example. So, so last summer... I was on sabbatical, and one of the really fun things I got to do on sabbatical was visit lots of friends' churches who I don't get to visit because I'm typically busy on Sundays. And um, I get to visit all these churches, and I saw my friend, and he's one of the most generous people I know, and I surprised him. He didn't know I was coming. And I brought my kids, and he was so excited to meet my kids, and he just couldn't believe we were there. And he's like, oh, my gosh, you surprised me. Thank you so much. You should have told me you were coming. And I was like, that's the point. I wanted to surprise you. He's like, well, wait, hold on. And he runs back to his office and he comes out. I, he says, just, I'm so grateful you're here. And he says, here, go to lunch at this place and you have to spend all of this today. And gives me this insane gift card. More than we could ever spend there. And he says, wait, hold on. And he comes back with three cards, one for each of my kids, a gift card to Amazon for a lot of money. A lot of money. And he says, here's the deal. Kids, two rules. You can only spend this on yourself, and you have to spend it today. Those are my two rules. And, and my kids are like, Dad, we got to go to this church more often. <laughs> this place is amazing. Yeah. 
everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts, right? That's, uh, they're so excited. And so they're in awe, right? And they're looking at all of the junk they're going to buy on Amazon, right? And they're looking at all this stuff. So we go to this restaurant, and it's more money than we could ever spend. And I was like, guys, we have been blessed just ridiculously today. You know what we should do? We should give a 100% tip to the server. That's what we should do. Because it's going to cost us basically nothing. And, and so we, we say to the guy, right, you've been incredible. And he was. He was an incredible server. And I said, we just, we've been blessed so incredibly. Hey, we want to bless you with this. Thanks. <laughs> right. He's blown away. Changes his life. Now, was it hard for us to give a 100% tip in that situation? No, I'm just giving him the rest of the gift card practically, right? It's like not even mine. It's just flowing through me to another person to bless him because of what I already have. And see, the giving completed the joy of receiving. Once I had this, it was such an overflow, so overwhelming. I can't contain it. I got to share it with someone else. It's more blessed to give than to receive because actually giving completes the joy of receiving. When you share what you have, you see how wonderful it is and you just can't contain it. Now, you might say, Jeff, I don't have friends like you who give me that. Or, or Jeff, I'm not rich. I can't give like that. And I would say, you're not rich? In Jesus, you're not rich? What does Paul say? 2 Corinthians 8. He's trying to motivate us to give. And what does he say? He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became what? Poor, so that you by his poverty might become what? Rich. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to Jesus. All status and privilege and wealth and the worship of angels and eternal glory and he disadvantages himself and becomes a human being and becomes a slave and pours out his life on the cross for us, divests himself of all the, the privileges and the status and, 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 and seeking his own interest first, lays it all down for us that in him we might have everything, takes on all our liabilities, gives us all of his assets, becomes poor that we might become rich. Paul isn't talking about your earthly bank account, okay? He's talking about your spiritual bank account and what you already have in Jesus. See, even if you're, you're barely cutting it financially, do you know what you have in Jesus? Paul says you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you know how much God gives you in Jesus? He gives you everything he has forever. What do you have? Four things that will make you generous. You know what you already have in Jesus? You already have Christ's contentment. You already have Jesus walking with you every day. And Paul said, I know Jesus so intimately that you know what? When I'm poor, I'm content in Jesus. And when I have a lot and I have abundance, I know how to be content in Jesus then too. I don't get greedy and just chase more. I know how to abound with little. I know how to abound with much. I have contentment in Christ. In, in Jesus who is enough, we have enough. 
And, and so we have this great centering force in life where the common denominator, Jesus, doesn't change. So even if our circumstances change financially, it doesn't have to change our contentment. You already have that. You already have that. You already have a family in Jesus. Who are my mother and brother and sisters, Jesus says. He says, I'm going to give you a faith family, and that faith family is going to take care of your needs too. That You have Christ's family. You have Christ's Father. In Jesus, you're adopted into God's family, and so God is as favorably disposed to you as he is to Jesus. You are his beloved son or daughter in whom he is well pleased, and he's a good dad, and he wants to give you what you need. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 7, which one of you fathers, if his son asked him for bread, would give him a stone? If he asked for a fish, would give him a serpent? If then you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Right? When, when Jake asks me for a sandwich, I don't give him a python, right? I, he'd like a python because he likes snakes. But I don't give him a venomous snake, right? Because I'm not a bad dad. But I'm a way worse dad than our Heavenly Father. And when we ask, he hears us and he knows us and he gives us exactly what we need for our eternal joy all the time. So you already have that in Jesus. You know what else you have? You have Jesus' 401k plan. Jesus' inheritance. You are a co-heir with Christ. What does Jesus get to inherit? Everything. Guess what you get to inherit? Everything. He who did not spare his own son for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? 1 Corinthians 3, all things are yours. Family, the world, heaven, the present, the future, they're all yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's, Paul says. Right? That's what you have coming is, is blessing beyond measure. The 401k plan of Jesus, right? If you had a trillion dollars in perfectly secure investment funds, you wouldn't be worried about generosity, would you? You already have eternally and more. So, so this changes our perspective on generosity, right? Even if you're scraping by, you can live a generous life with your time, with your attention, with the way you treat people. And yes, as God provides with money too, but it starts with the right question. And here's the implication. Here's the right question. Being generous does not start with asking, what do I give to Jesus? But what do I have in Jesus? If I start with, what do I have to give to Jesus? I'm much more inclined to give what? As little as possible. What do I have in Jesus? If I have this, if I have contentment in life, if he gives me a family, if I have a generous heavenly father, if I have this perfect eternal future, I have that? What do I have to lose by giving? In fact, I never don't have a motivation to give. I can give my life away and I can give money away as well. Does that make sense? And so if you're struggling to let go of your stuff, remember what you have in Jesus that you can't lose. And that's the only thing that's going to loosen your grip on money. And that'll cause money to loosen its grip on you as well. Because it doesn't have to be your security or your idol. So let's say we all believe that. We all lived like that. 
we all functioned, what would our church look like? Five things, and then we're done. Here's what Paul says. First, a generous church would make giving a priority. Giving would be a priority. Paul says this, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Now, this is interesting because Paul is talking about the Sunday gathering. This is one of the earliest references to gathering on Sundays for Christians. That's the first day of the week. And he says each of you is to give something for the collection, but it's interesting. They're not collecting it on Sundays. Do you see that? It's put something aside and then you store it up for yourself for when I'm coming. In other words, Paul is saying make a commitment on this day to put something aside for when I come. Now, now what is Paul trying to establish here for the church? I think it's a habit of as the first thing they do each week, setting aside money to commit to God. Because there is a principle throughout the scriptures that because God is first, we seek him first, we give to him first. One pastor calls this the principle of preeminence. Principle of preeminence. God comes first in everything. Jesus has first place. He's first over creation. He's, he's the first. He's the best. And he goes first for us, doesn't he? And he gives his best for us. And so now we treat him as first in priority. And what it means to seek the kingdom first is that we commit to giving to him first as a priority. Proverbs 3, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. What does that mean? As one pastor says, you give what is right, not what is left. You commit to saying, I am going to be generous. I have a plan. It's a priority. I set aside how much that is, but it's a plan, and I commit to following through on it. I don't spend everything on me, and then I'll figure out how to use my money for the purposes of the kingdom. I'm not going to give God the leftovers of my life. I'm going to commit to that first as a priority. What that means for Cashel and me, we do that yearly. We say, here is the bare minimum we're going to give to the things we support. And then prayerfully, we'll think about committing more. But we're going to make a priority to give that. Does that make sense? It's a priority. Second, it is pervasive. Giving in a generous church is pervasive. It isn't just relying on the really wealthy people to bail the church out. What does he say? On the very first every week, who does it? Each of you. Each of you. See, if we just wanted to make money in the church, if that was the goal, just find all the rich people, start hedge funds, just find any money-making scheme we can. But that's not the point of generosity. We're all supposed to be growing in generosity. We're all supposed to be becoming like God and becoming givers like God. So everyone, whether you can give very little or give a whole lot, is practicing generosity. And I think this speaks to one of the lies that keeps people from being generous, and it's this. If I had more money, I would be generous. If I had more... Now, there are people who are scraping by who basically cannot be generous. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the person that, man, if I, if I just got that raise, if I just got the promotion, I'll be generous. You know, I have read a lot of statistics on how rich people give and how poor people give. And in terms of percentage of giving, there is basically no difference. No difference. In fact, often poor people give a higher percentage of their money than rich people. So the idea that if I just had more money, I'll become more generous is a lie. 
Because generosity isn't first about what you have in your bank account. It's what has a hold on your heart. It's what has a hold on your priorities. And if you don't start giving away your money at some point, that next point when you hit the next level, there's no guarantee you're going to be generous then. Because almost inevitably for Americans is their standard of income goes up, their standard of living comes up, their standard of debt goes up, and they go, oh, where did it all go? I don't have money to be generous. So everyone, it's a discipline each of us follows because our hearts are moved by the gospel, whether you give a lot or a little. Third, it would be proportional. On the first day of every week, each of you put something aside as he may prosper. In other words, as income comes in, if there's unexpected windfalls of cash, guess what? Unexpected generosity. If you have a little, maybe you can only give a little, but as you get a lot, you look not just how am I going to increase my standard of living, how am I going to increase my standard of giving? Why? Because the gospel is motivating me. That if God is more generous to me, that means I'm going to be more generous to other people. You see how that works? Yeah. Fourth, in a generous church like this, giving would be what? Plentiful. Plentiful. I love what Paul says. Do all of these things so that when I get there, there will be what? No collecting. Corinthians, I don't want to have to have a giving campaign when I show up. I don't want to have to go, okay, let's collect all the money. No, I should be waiting there. The money should be ready. Thank you so much. We're going, we're taking it to Jerusalem, right? See, this is critical for, for churches. I, I know people want to give to some compelling vision or some exciting new thing the church is supposed to be doing and all that, but that's not the fundamental reason you give. You give because God is first. Jesus went first for you. He has first place in your life. He has given you everything, so you'll give back to him. That's why you give. That's a priority of giving. And when you give like that, guess what? We don't need to come up here all the time and try to wring a little more money out of you. So I don't work. And I love that about you, Creekside. You are this church. Let me give you an example of that, okay? And why I would hate to do that. Uh, this is an expensive building to maintain. Do you know that? And it's a 20-year-old building. So guess what? Things are about to come due on this building and break. And they're breaking. And the economizer, we need an economizer on our AC unit. And our AC is about to break potentially in here and in the community room. And we're band-aiding it. And so we need AC. And believe me, you're going to want AC. <laughs> okay? Do you know how much it costs for two rooms? $140,000. Okay? Because our council does such an outstanding job stewarding our funds. Because you are faithful. Look, we can just pay that check. We can pay that bill. And you know what that means? I don't have to come up here and do the AC giving campaign. Because <laughs> do be honest, do you really want to give to that? Right? I come up here with like some thermometer, right? Except the, the temperature goes down instead of up as the giving increases, right? Because we're going to stay cool in here and quote a bunch of Old Testament verses about fire out of context, right? To just like pressure you into giving your money. No, I don't have to do any of that. Because just you give. And then the money stewarded well. We don't have to worry about that stuff. We don't have to be in a panic at the end of the year to meet budget. Oh, please just give a little more. We got to meet this goal all the time. Oh, gosh, okay, okay, okay. That's not how giving should work in the church because if it's already a priority in each of your lives and the church is stewarding it well, we can just abound. We can just abound and we can be ready for things when they happen. They'll keep breaking down on the building. They'll keep being stupidly expensive. But that's okay. You're generous. God will meet our needs. 
Okay? Plentiful giving. Finally, giving creates profound partnership in the gospel. Paul says, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable, I should go also. They will accompany me. Now, what Paul is saying here is that they need trustworthy people to take the money. And that makes sense. Because they're probably going to be consolidating this money right into a few big hunks of gold and then carrying it to Jerusalem. You want really reputable people. People who can be accredited by a letter of recommendation. People the Corinthian church would agree with. And the church should be just completely above board in the way it handles money. Absolute integrity. But here's the interesting thing. Paul asked each of these churches to send a representative to Jerusalem to give the money to the Jerusalem church. Why would Paul do that? Why would Paul gather this collection of emissaries from the Gentile churches and go to Jerusalem to present this gift? I think this is one of the singular things that happened in the early church to produce unity. And here's why. The divide in the early church was between who? Jew and Gentile. And if the church was going to fracture, it was going to fracture on that ethnic and religious line, and there would be a Jewish church in Jerusalem, and then a Gentile church in the rest of the Mediterranean world, not one church. So what does Paul do? He says, we have benefited spiritually from these Jews who brought us the gospel. We're going to bless them financially. And so this campaign serves to unify the church in the known world with the Gentiles coming back to the Jews saying, thank you for giving us the gospel. Now we're going to give you this gift to meet your needs. What else could we do? Do you see how when you give, that creates unity? That creates partnership. Because, man, once someone pulls out their checkbook or you know, opens their app or texts to give or whatever they do today, and they, they put their money where their mouth is, that means I really love you. If I'm willing to sacrifice something to help you in that way, it shows we're really in this together, doesn't it? That, that's what Paul wanted was this partnership in the gospel to produce unity in the church. And I will tell you, that is what will get your heart invested in the people of God is giving. Giving. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Our, our hearts reveal, our wallets reveal our hearts, but our hearts also follow our wallets. The more you invest in something, the more you love it. The more you love it. And so what does that mean for us? Obviously, in terms of generosity, what we give to as Christians, the obvious one from this one is we support Christians who are in need. We have a benevolence fund. It's doing great right now. We try to meet needs through that common good fund here. You give to that generously. Thank you. As you find needs in the body of Christ that you can meet, just meet them. You don't have to go through us. <laughs> go through the benevolent fund. Be generous toward other Christians in need because we do good to all, but especially to our faith family because they're family. Where do you give? We, we give to support those who make a living from the gospel. Me, right? Our staff. And we go to support ministry workers and missionaries to the ends of the earth so the gospel can go forward. Those are the places we give. And, and let me tell you, if you're, if you're invested at Creekside and you're not invested financially, you should. And one of the reasons you should is just to deepen your partnership in the gospel so that you're seeking first the kingdom. And, and tell you, let me tell you, like what I dream for this church is to be the church of abundance. Do you know why? Not so that we can get the greatest air conditioning unit 
in history, right? That'll break again, right? It's so that we can be blessed and overflow in blessing to the East Bay and the nations and beyond. We are not a church that wants to be about seating capacity. We want to be about sending capacity and deploying what God has given us to bless tons of people. And the more you give, the more we bless, the more churches we partner with, the more missionaries we send, the more needs in the community we address, the more we move the line of scrimmage forward for the kingdom of God in all these ways. I want to be that church where we're so well taken care of here. We're not worried about just our budget. We're like, what can we do to keep extending the kingdom? That's exciting to me. Creekside, you are that church already. Did you know that? I mean, over the past four to five years, we've given $200,000 to church planning, half a million to global missions, community partners. And we're going to keep getting more abundant if we are on this track. And that's exciting. So just excel, excel still more, okay? Keep doing what you're doing. Look, we've got, um, I was very excited. Uh, another thing that, that's just riveting for a pastor that's really boring for you. Our amortization schedule on our mortgage. You know how much we have left on this mortgage right now? 785000 left on the mortgage for this building, okay? Now, all right, so we've we got like a, a two-bedroom condo in San Leandro left, okay? That's what we've got <laughs> right now left on this building. And that's not a lot. That's not a lot. And we're super aggressive about paying it down because we've got like a 2.7% interest rate on it. And there's no reason we should wait to pay it off. There's no reason to prolong that. There's no tax break, okay, for churches to do that. So just keep being generous. That's going to free up hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to deploy for mission and ministry, okay? That's exciting to me. That's exciting because you know what? Then we get the joy of seeing God give through us to keep extending his kingdom and see for ourselves that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Isn't that more motivating? That's more motivating for me. All right, I'll end with this. Um, I should have closed in prayer there. That was like a good landing. Darn it. Man, didn't, didn't do it. But I'll end with this. Uh, if you don't yet know Jesus... Um, you know, I think one of the reasons we think, oh man, religion just wants my money is maybe our perception of God is God just takes. That, that, that ultimately what God wants is just, he just needs things from me all the time, more service, more devotion. Let me tell you, that is the antithesis of the God of the gospel and the God revealed in Jesus. Because the gospel is God gives. God gives first. God creates the world and gives you life. And then even in your sin, God gives you his son, his one and only son. I got four kids. I wouldn't give you any of them. <laughs> I wouldn't. God gave his only son, his only son for your salvation. And in Jesus, you have everything God can give you. He gives you his spirit and his presence and his promises and his provision and his own family. And he gives you an eternal future with him. He cannot give you more. And you cannot outgive him. He is always only a blessed, blessing God. That's the God you're invited to know. And he will make you a giver like he is a giver. That's what he is inviting you into when you trust in Jesus. Let's pray. So, so, Father, I pray that we would see the abundance of what you have given us in Jesus.
as you say, Paul, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable riches. We already have them, Jesus. We already have them. And, and Jesus, we have joy in you. God, if we've got $3 million in our 401k, or we are just scraping by today, each of those people has the exact same joy available to them, Jesus. And so because of that, Jesus, because we are living from a place of fullness as we abide in you, make us givers like you are givers. A giver. Make us glad in giving because of what we have received. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us everything. Pray it in your name. Amen.